Every knowledgeable person knows that when you have gold, you've protected your wealth. But what if the government one day wanted to confiscate your gold so they can gain total control, knowing that one day the smoke will clear and gold will be perfectly available, and that's happened all throughout history. So what you need to do is, in the interim, hide your gold. You can do that by burying it. You can go down about 12 inches, and that's all you're going to need to do. And we have a product that we call BarryYourGold.com, and what it does is it goes into a container. You lower it in the ground with a hole you've dug up to 12 inches. It's a 50-year warranty on the device. It only weighs 17 pounds to pull it out of the ground, and you can keep it for safekeeping. And I'll tell you, this is the way to hide your gold, not in false walls, but underground will be very, very difficult to detect. To find out more, go to BarryYourGold.com. The product is fully guaranteed with a money-back guarantee. Hello, America. Dave Hodges here, host of The Common Sense Show. We are the show that is freeing America, one enslaved mind at a time. Hey, and this is on digital for most of you, so please share far and wide. We need to bring people to the fight because we need... The sound of lots of marching boots to take back our country from the Bolshevik communists who've stolen it from us. We're really glad to be with you, and we have a show today that I have been waiting to do forever. Ever since Liz Harris, and you heard her here, was kicked out of the Arizona legislature for daring to say, there's a problem with our elections. Oh, no, you can't say that. And, gee, some of our people are involved with people that aren't very nice. And she didn't say that, though. But a guest she invited in with, what, about 20,000 pages of documentation did say that. And it got Liz kicked out. And you know what's funny? The people who kicked her out, a lot of them are dirty. A lot of them are on the take. And this is a show where we're going to lay the foundation how places like Arizona, but not the only state, are controlled by the Sinaloa and the Chicoms. Oh, that's right. You heard me correctly. The Sinaloa and the Chicoms. Also, the CJNG has a little bit of say in this. And Arizona is ripe with this. We'll focus a lot on Arizona, but we'll also make our rounds in subsequent investigations to other states as well. The man's name, our guest, is John Taylor. He's an attorney. And most of all, he's a seasoned RICO investigator. That means organized crime criminals in collusion with each other and this is what we have in the state of arizona where we have absolutely horrendous officials most of them not all of them there are some good ones but some of the cops some of the administrative people certainly quite a few judges although there's still some good judges they're involved in this they're up to their eyeballs and he's now produced a book called report to the governor and we're going to be telling you how you can get a copy of that. I've read it. It is not easy reading. Now, it's not the vocabulary so extensive. It's the documentation that slows you down and gets so darn expensive. So I've been wanting to interview John for a long time. We wanted to finish his book. Um, Jackie Brager, his uh, top assistant, gave the presentation to the Arizona legislature. And these people about, you know, did a little doo-doo in their pants. And they should be because we're not going to let go of it. And I'm not the only one that has this. Sarah Westall is also reporting on this. We've collaborated and actually done a show on this together. So we're not letting this go. So coming to a state near you. Hey, we're brought to you by Noble Gold. 
Ladies and gentlemen, have you heard the news? 19,000 fewer ATMs since the lockdowns. What's going on? Well, they're going to take us into CBDC. What does that mean? That means your bank is going to crash. Well, what's going to happen? Well, under the Dodd-Frank Law of 2010, they're going to keep your money. So if you got a retirement, you better get it out. If you've got a bank account or bank accounts, you better get the money out, leave operating capital in. That's all you need to do. Noble Gold can do that for you. Now, I've got to give you a disclaimer here. The federal government wants me to tell you that nothing is guaranteed, no promises have been made, and past performance is not indicative of future performance. We, we agree with all that. Okay, but I also agree with this. If you don't move quickly... You stand to lose everything. So what do you got to do? Go to DaveHodgesGold.com. I'll send you a free information packet, DaveHodgesGold.com, or call 877-646-5347, 877 specialty, if you will, which is not something that anybody specifically recognizes, is in investigating white-collar crime. I, I investigate it both for private individuals, I investigate it for corporations that are getting ripped off and can't figure out how that's happening. And I investigate it for government agencies. And that not only includes, um, you know, U.S. agencies, it also includes Canadian agencies. And so over the years, my experience has been especially in banking, but in banking fraud, embezzlement, uh, you know, and all the things that come with racketeering, mm-hmm. including money laundering. And so I have a 33-year, almost 34-year career of doing exactly that. So when I got to this, um, you know, the particular matter that's in the book, you know, report to the governor, uh, you know, I already had a very strong background in this. Uh, I have, you know, trusted clients. And as you and I were talking off the air, uh, you know, I had several of them, including one who I have handled these kinds of investigations for, uh, you know, write, you know, short forewords to the book to give some idea of not just my credibility, but my background and their experiences with me. Uh, both as a client and I think also, as, as I know you read it, as a friend, so that they, you know, people could discern more about me and more understanding about my life, uh, you know, prior to this book. My life did not begin in 2019 when this investigation began in Arizona. Uh, it certainly has been very productive before that. And, you know, I have an unblemished record for what I've done. And obviously, I wouldn't be still doing it if I weren't good at it. Yeah, obviously. You wouldn't have a law license if you weren't good at it either, because uh, it's easy to step on the wrong toes. Um, I've had conversations about what I knew about your work prior to getting your publication. And a lot of it was secondhand through people like Liz Harris. And I talked to some people in government here in Arizona, and uh, they didn't want to know anything about it. And I concluded this before we get into specific issues. In my state, I'm, I think it's the same in Georgia. I think it's probably the same in Pennsylvania from what I've seen. But in my state, I think there's three categories of government officials, ones who are on the take, ones who'd like to be on the take and cover up for the ones who are waiting their turn in line, and the other are the people that are too chicken to do anything about it. Would you modify that paradigm, or what do you think? Yeah, I would slightly. I, I think that's all true. Um, I would say something else about it, though, and I, I think it may be even more useful, especially in a state like Arizona. Uh, there is a, you know, go along to get along philosophy. Uh, you know, you talk to anybody in government in Arizona off the record, and they will all tell you they know this goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they will tell you they know people who are involved in this. They will tell you they know a lot of shady dealings. You know, obviously, my book covers not ex- not not exclusively, but certainly extensively money laundering through you know purchases of real property. 
and, and also bribes being paid through falsified mortgages. Um, you know, that's that's not new, by the way, for anybody who's out there. I mean, I'm just pointing it out in Arizona because of how it's corrupted the entire state. But doing this, you know, putting drug monies through mortgages, putting drug monies through the purchases of properties, bribing officials through mortgages is not new. And in fact, you know, uh, about a month ago when Bob Menendez, the senior senator of New Jersey, uh, was charged, one of the things he was charged with was accepting bribes through mortgage payments. So, you know, we're not we're not first to game at all. Um, I think most people live in kind of a bubble where this is not their daily lives and nor should it be. Uh, but, you know, when you look at the actual charges against someone like Senator Menendez, and this is the second go round of him being indicted, uh, you see that, you know, the things that we're saying are things that are, are fairly common, uh, at least fairly common amongst criminals. And so what I would say is this, it's not just a matter of people who are afraid to do something. It's that in a state like Arizona, that and so horribly corrupted. I, I, mean, I call it a cesspool of corruption. Uh, the entire system has been this way. And it didn't happen overnight. So what you have is that anybody who's coming up to be in government, to be a government official, uh, to be involved in government, you know, has to either be involved in the corruption or certainly has to look the other way. Otherwise, you don't rise. You, you, there's nowhere for you to go whether that's in the prosecutor's office in Maricopa County, uh, you know, whether that's being a, a city, uh, you know, a city attorney or, or a prosecutor, or whether that's being a city court judge as opposed to a superior court judge. If you're going to move up through the ranks, you either have to look the other way uh, or you, you have to be a part of it. And in fact, to the degree that, uh, of city court judges, especially and, and Arizona has an, a, kind of an odd system of how this works. Each city has its own courts. Um, you know, you basically have to be willing to to play uh, to get the job. You don't get the job if you're not willing to involve yourself in at least some levels of the corruption, whether that be, you know, to to you know find every person who challenges a ticket guilty uh, or whether that's to charge, you know, ridiculous amounts of bail uh, to keep somebody in jail or whether that is even just you know, almost assuredly finding somebody guilty uh, of a crime. Uh, you know, to to punish them because they dared to try to break up some kind of criminal system here. Um, so I think it's it's both ways. It's it's not even necessarily a matter of being too scared. It's that where you're getting the people from who take these jobs is such that they're very highly selected because they will get along. Yeah, in, in 1977, a reporter named Don Bowles. I actually had his brother as a grad uh, uh, professor. Uh, but he was sitting outside the courthouse of Maricopa County investigating illegal land deals involving politicians and key figures in the state. And his car was blown up and he died a few days later. It was actually covered on 60 Minutes. I'm sure you're aware of the case. I am. Does this kind of corruption go back to that time in 1977? Or is what you talked about in your book regarding the Sinaloa cartel and so forth, is this a recent phenomena? How does the Bowles case tie into all this? I'll, I'll, I'll explain it this way. And I talk about this a little bit in the book, because if you're not from Arizona, there's a lot of things about the state that you don't know. I mm-hmm. you know there's the Grand Canyon and and you know that, uh, you know, there's Arizona State University and 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 U of A and all that, but but the structure of the state is very different than other states, and that is one of the one of the key elements. And I know you know this because you're there. Is that until and, and this makes an interesting difference until roughly the the early '90s and really almost to 2000, uh, Arizona did not have a comprehensive freeway system. Yeah. And you know you think of that and you go, oh, well, okay, so how'd you get around? Well, you got around on streets. 
um, for people who don't know, Arizona, Phoenix area, especially, but also Tucson, are grids, essentially. So if you wanted to go somewhere, you went, you know, five blocks north and, you know, three blocks west. I mean, that's how you got places. Um, now, why does that matter? It's kind of an odd deal, but why does that matter? It matters because each individual city, whether it was Chandler or Mesa or Queen Creek, you know, or, 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 or Santan Valley, you know, or, or, or Goodyear or Litchfield, you know, all of these places were totally separate places where they had their own separate governments, you know, and these are all cities, but they have their own separate governments. They are very autonomous. They run off of their own tax dollars. And as a result, each one small, but being local also grew its own corruption. And, you know, if you wanted to go, if you lived in Phoenix and you wanted to go to Mesa, say in 1980, you know, that was a 45-minute street drive. Now, if you want to go to Mesa, it's a 20-minute, you know, 10, 15, 20-minute drive, depending on where you are. It's an entirely different place than it was in the, in, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And as a result, a lot of the, the internal corruption of the cities stayed with it. Uh, and for whatever the reason, Maricopa County as a county uh, has never done anything to try to consolidate this, clean this up, et cetera. The cities still have this great deal of autonomy. Now, you get into the early 80s. Now, before before we get to the, the cartels for a second, you know, there was always drugs filtering into Arizona going back certainly into the 70s, if not before. I mean, marijuana certainly was traveling up through Mexico into Arizona. But because Arizona was mostly made up of, you know, of, of an older demographic, you know, retirees, you know, the, the sales didn't take place there. The drugs didn't stay there. It was, you know, they were way stations to send them off other places. When you got into the 80s and you started to get a younger demographic moving into Arizona, into the housing developments that more what we then called outskirt areas, you know, into into Gilbert, uh, into Mesa, into Litchfield Park, into Goodyear, you know, places that are kind of what we would call the suburbs. Um, what you started having happen is younger people moving in, people now going, you know, going from, I mean, you never went to ASU and then stayed in Phoenix. And usually it's because you weren't from Arizona to begin with. Now, you know, you go to ASU and you get a job in, in the Phoenix area, or you go to U of A and you get a job in the Tucson area. You know, that was unheard of in the 70s and 80s. But slowly during the 80s, drugs changed and they changed from marijuana, which, you know, certainly had had a, a role in crime in, in, in Arizona, like it did in other states, but was certainly not a, 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 a big deal drug in the sense of what we now have with fentanyl and heroin and cocaine. And, you know, starting in the early 80s, you started to have the movement of cocaine coming from Mexico. You know, a change in the cartels who used to be involved almost exclusively uh, in marijuana and weren't even considered cartels by the way we think of them today. And you had this change in the early 80s into into cocaine and then, of course, into crystal meth and now into fentanyl. And, of course, you know, we talk about in the book that fentanyl is actually supplied through the Chinese, which is mm -hmm. another area we can cover. But you now have these drugs that are not just coming into the state. But the billions of dollars that come with them being invested into the state uh, through what were already corrupt systems in cities and in counties. So you had kind of the perfect storm. You had this huge increase in drugs, a huge increase in cash and a corrupt city system not joined together until really the 90s, uh, you know, by freeway systems. So these places were separate and had their own corruption. Perfect storm for what's gone on in Arizona. It is absolutely amazing what's happened. Uh, one of the interests I have, and you certainly hit on this in your report, um, is in the corrupt elections. And l let me just kind of lay a brief scenario and then let you take it where you will. 
um, the 2022 midterm election in heavy Republican areas nearly. We at the Common Sense Show have a great TV show. We bring in a panel of experts and help people navigate the uncharted waters that we're living in. Because what once was coming is no longer coming. It's already here, and we're getting you the help so you can make better decisions for your future. You can find us at the TV, commercial-free, censorship-free, and we're getting five-star ratings on the world's major platforms. Again, check us out today at TV. Every knowledgeable person knows that when you have gold, you've protected your wealth. But what if the government one day wanted to confiscate your gold so they can gain total control, knowing that one day the smoke will clear and gold will be perfectly available, and that's happened all throughout history. So what you need to do is, in the interim, hide your gold. You can do that by burying it. You can go down about 12 inches, and that's all you're going to need to do. And we have a product that we call buryyourgold.com. And what it does is it goes into a container. You lower it in the ground with a hole you've dug up to 12 inches. It's a 50-year warranty on the device. It only weighs 17 pounds to pull it out of the ground. And you can keep it for safekeeping. And I'll tell you, this is the way to hide your gold. Not in false walls, but underground will be very, very difficult to detect. To find out more, go to buryyourgold.com. The product is fully guaranteed with a money-back guarantee. Did you know that the World Economic Forum now, they in the last meeting they convened, they actually had a water board there with water experts, and they tell us our water is in danger and they have to take control of our water. Does that bother anybody? I'm sure it does. And I begin thinking right now about water safety. And we already know there's lead in the water, chemicals in the water. A lot of it's not safe to drink. But we have the answer for you. It's called the Alexa Pure Pro Water Filter. It's the best there is. And scientifically, they leave nothing to doubt as they publish their research at waterwithdave.com. And it's my choice for water filtration. Gravity powered. It reduces 206 contaminants. It targets heavy metals, fluoride, chlorine, and viruses. It is the best there is in the business. And you can read all the research on this simply by going to water with dave.com that's water with dave.com save eighty dollars for a short time 60 percent of the voting machines failed upon opening i had neighbors and friends and relatives that were affected by this and the estimates about how many people are disenfranchised vary from a hundred thousand to three hundred thousand but it was significant enough to affect the election yet every judge that's heard this has no problem with that Every judge had no problem with Katie Hobbs, the opponent of Carrie Lake, who was the Secretary of State in charge of elections. They had no problem with her not recusing herself and making rulings that affected her own election. And then, of course, I'm familiar with what you've said about Katie Hobbs' affiliations in the past uh, with crime uh, syndicates. Let's, let's start there, though. These judges that make these rulings that defy description um, what do you make of this? What have you found? Well, I'll go back on that uh, just a step and say that, look, at the risk, I, there are there are some very, very good judges in Arizona. There are some very good ones at the Superior Court level. Um, you know, over my career, though most of my career has been spent in, in California and other states, 
I've certainly had a career in Arizona, and I've probably been involved in several dozen cases directly in the Superior Court system in Maricopa County over the years. Um, I have had judges who are absolutely terrific, who are smart, uh, who are interesting, who read the papers, which is a big deal here. Uh, and I'll explain about that in a second, but who actually read the papers and the, you know, their decisions, whether they're for me or against me, are very well reasoned and well supported. Uh, I have also experienced the worst judges in the country being in Arizona and especially in Maricopa County. I mean, the worst, uh, you know, and the system makes it that way. One of the things that I talk about in the book is that unlike other states, when you file a motion, you know, you file a motion on, on some subject matter to be heard. Uh, you don't get to argue that motion orally. It doesn't happen. Instead, what happens is you submit your papers. The other side submits their opposition, or if they submit, you submit your opposition. And then roughly about 30 days later, a decision is made uh, in writing. There is no hearing. And the judge is not required to give you what is usually called a statement of decision. The judge can simply say, no good cause having been shown, the motion's denied or good cause having been shown, the motion's granted. He or she does not have to put in the decision anything that explains their decision, why they made it, what law they're basing it on. So you as the litigant, or as you know, certainly the lawyer representing the litigant, uh, you are stuck. You don't even know what necessarily to appeal because you don't know why the decision was made. And this has allowed judges in the state of Arizona, and especially in Maricopa County, to become lazy. And I mean lazy with a capital L, probably all letters, they're capital. They don't read the papers. They don't care. And they kind of systematically, you know, kind of read the title. And if it's something they don't want to grant, they simply wait the 30 days and don't grant it. Uh, you have no recourse to this. You can ask for an oral hearing. You won't get it. So with the exception of certain motions that are required by law to be heard orally, you don't have a chance of appearing in front of a judge and explaining your position or having your position heard or even having a judge ask you questions you know, for you to answer. That is entirely different than almost every other state. And as a result, what it does is it does two things. It provides an opportunity to put judges in who are not very smart. And that's part of the corruption. So what you what you get in Arizona is you get certainly some judges who are who are terrific. Like I said, I, and there's some, and I, I would be happy to name them by name, um, who are really terrific. Whether they they've ruled for me or against me, uh, they're smart and they read the papers and they know their law and they cite to the law, et cetera, et cetera. But you have a whole number of them that are put into place, um, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. But they're put into place because they don't know anything and because they will kind of go along at least not necessarily with corruption, but at least with a status quo. Uh, and that's what you see with a lot of these, these judges. And that's why you get these kind of just absolutely bizarre decisions. I mean, the decision I will talk, let's talk about this for a second on this with Carrie Lake, for example, one of the, the early motions that she filed early you know, cases that she filed, um, you know, was about, what happened on election day, the manner in which votes were counted, the manner in which the absentee ballots were counted, certainly the breakdown, as you talked about, in the machines. She filed this complaint. The complaint at the, both the trial level and the appellate level was thrown out, not because of the merits of what she was saying, but because a judge at the trial court le level ruled that she had to bring these complaints prior to the election. <laughs> How on earth, prior to the fraud, can you bring a complaint for fraud? I, I mean, this is an astounding 
decision by a judge who frankly should be removed from the bench, not because I agree or disagree with with the case, but because to to rule that you have to plead a fraud case before the fraud occurs is insane. And for a judge to make this ruling shows that the judge doesn't understand anything about jurisprudence. Again, it doesn't matter whether whether Lake was right or wrong. That procedural decision is nuts. And to have an appellate court affirm it, you know, speaks volumes about the quality of the appellate court judges. It took the Supreme Court of Arizona to say, yeah, no, 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 no. You can't you can't plead a fraud in advance of the fraud. And what what the trial court had relied on, just so you know, it wasn't out of a vacuum. Trial court relied on a statute that said that if you don't like the rules, if you think any of the rules for how ballots are done, how ballots are counted, et cetera, is, is bad, you have to bring anything, you know, any lawsuit on the rules prior to the election. Well, of course, that makes sense, because if you're disagreeing with the way something's going to be done, you would bring, you know, a motion or you would bring a lawsuit saying, I disagree with this. It violates due process. It violates Voting Rights Act, on and on and on. But to try to say that somehow this applies to fraud committed on Election Day, fraud, in other words, not following statutes, not following guidelines, uh, again, is insanity. And so that's the first part of this, is you get just really dumb judges who don't know anything about law. And 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 like I said, this is the stuff, I guess, for most of us lawyers that astounds us. I will tell you a story here, um, you know, even in the matters that I'm personally involved in. Um, lawyers from other states will not come into Arizona. They will not go in what we call Pro Hoc Vice, which is where they align themselves with a lawyer who is licensed in Arizona. They will not get themselves licensed in Arizona. To them, it's too crazy. There's there's no real standard of law in the state of Arizona. The standard of law is whatever one of these judges says, by the way, without an opinion and without giving a statement of why he feels that way or she feels that way on the date that they issue the opinion. Um, and so you get really good lawyers who won't practice in Arizona. You get really good lawyers who won't even team up with lawyers in Arizona because it's that crazy. It is. It is crazy. Um I, I, you know, I, I've seen it. I, I had my own case. In fact, the reason I'm behind the microphone now, I used to, I started out as a young high school teacher, graduated to being a professor and a college basketball coach. And I walked away from all that to do this because the McCain mafia tried to force me and 300 of my rural neighbors off our land without compensation. And, uh, so I have seen this firsthand. In fact, let me tell you what we ran into. We would go get a law firm. Oh, you guys got a great case. Can you come up with $100,000? This is like 20 years ago. Yeah, we can come up with $100,000. Oh, slam dunk, you're going to get damages. And then we get the phone call. Well, our partners want to be judges, and they don't want to take on McCain. And that's where this leads. And so we ran into that four times. Yeah. We we eventually got the Goldwater Institute to uh, basically mitigate our case. Uh, we settled out of court. At, but But the bottom line was, is I had to do a political favor. <laughs> it was illegal. It was perfectly legal, but it's not something I wouldn't have ordinarily done. Uh, well, so- you just, well, you just, you just, you just touched on it, and and most people don't know. You know, that's one of the other problems too. Manner in which judges are appointed. I mean, ultimately they are elected. That's why they're judges. Commissioners, mm-hmm. just so people know, commissioners are appointed. Judges are elected. But the initial, rarely does somebody run for a vacant office office and get get in it's normally there's an initial appointment made uh for somebody to be a judge there's several problems with this first problem is is that you know in state i just give an example in california 
if you want to be a judge, you fill out an application form. And it probably sits there and goes absolutely nowhere. Uh, but if you've got some some poll, if you've got people who really like you, if you especially if you're a member of the party that's in, that's in power, and of course nowadays in California, probably being a Republican is not a great stepping stone to becoming a judge. Um, but what happens is is this: when the application is reviewed, it's reviewed by a committee up in Sacramento, not anybody at the local level, and that's going to be a big difference with Arizona. It's re- it's reviewed up in Sacramento by a committee. Uh, you know, a governor's committee of, of individuals, some are lawyers, some are not, who, who review the qualifications. Then, you know, they then send to people like me, and I've done a lot of these over the years, they send us a series of, uh, of questionnaires saying, uh, do you know this person? And if you do, can you, can you fill out the rest of this questionnaire? Uh, which is, you know, their temperament, you know, how do they perform, you know, were they even handed, you know, did they understand the law, you know, what is, you know, you know, what do you think of them? And it's a pretty lengthy questionnaire, you know, about their character, about, you know, how you saw their their values, on and on and on. That gets evaluated. And of course, the state bar chimes in and does its own evaluation. You know, once that's done, you're still not a judge. Once that's done, you know, you just kind of make it to to a, a, a next, the next list. So this this vetting process Make sure that what you're getting is people who know the law, who have the moral character, uh, you know, who have the temperament, uh, you know, who have the experience, of course. Uh, and that's the people who get in. And, you know, I've had judges who I love in California. I have judges who I don't particularly like. You know, we all as lawyers sit around. We know who we want. We don't want. We know who, you know, really reads the papers and who doesn't. Um, you know, I mean, we, we know this. We know what judges we want in a certain case. Um, I'll, I'll make this joke about it, but it's really fairly serious. Um, there was a judge, a, a, there was a series of judges in, in Van Nuys, which is the Los Angeles County Superior Court, in the family law division, where you had two female judges. One of the judges thought that all men had been down for years about custody, and she would almost always rule that men had 50-50 custody. So if you're a guy and you want a 50-50 custody, that's the judge you took. In the department right next to her was a judge who thought anything with a penis was evil. And so if you were male and you went into her courtroom, you were getting nothing. Now, these are two courtrooms side by side. And if you were an experienced family law litigator, you knew this and you knew how to deal with this. You knew how to maneuver out of the courtroom you didn't you didn't want to be in. Um, but it was pretty well known, you know, what these philosophies were. Now, that's juxtaposed with what happens in Arizona. In Arizona, none of this occurs. The, the governor knows absolutely nothing about the appointments. What happens is, is that each county, and we'll take Maricopa County, Maricopa County has five supervisors. Each supervisorial district has two members who serve as you know, lookouts for potential judges. Uh, one of them is usually a lawyer and one of them is not. So mm-hmm. you have a layperson and a, ju- and, and, and a lawyer on this committee in each one of these districts. And what happens is that, you know, the two guys from Queen Creek say to the two guys from Avondale, uh, you know, here's our guy. We'll support your guy. You support our guy. And as long as then, you know, everybody, all, all 10 members, you know, say, great, you know, you'll, you're supporting our guy. You're, we're supporting yours on and on and on. The person gets approved. Right. Now, one of the big problems is that the amount of pay involved for judges is, is especially low. It is everywhere, but it's especially low in Arizona comparatively to what these people tend to make in big practices. So one of the problems, and we discuss this in the book, there's two major problems that have occurred in Arizona. One is, is that anybody who's in a large law firm is taking about a 75, 80% pay cut to be a judge, which means nobody wants the job. Unless this is a prestige job after a long career, 
you can't afford to go from a half a million dollar a year salary to one hundred twenty five thousand dollar a year salary. It's not it's not possible. You know, you're not living that lifestyle. So unless you're independently wealthy or you're nearing retirement, you can't do that. The other problem, which has occurred all over the country, but especially has hit Arizona particularly hard, is that judges who work for five years can now retire from judging and become what are called private judges. You know, ju- you know, still have the title of judge, but they hear matters privately where the parties pay for that, whether it's an arbitration or a mediation or an actual trial you can pay for that. So it means that people who are really good at this, um, who are very popular at this, you know, we're lawyers on both sides, plaintiff, defendant side, you know, like that particular judge, they have a big incentive to get out after five years and start making the big bucks again. And again, that takes them from that $125,000, $130,000 salary up to about five hundred to $750,000 a year for most mm-hmm. private judges. Um, so you, you don't get anybody staying in this who can make any money. Um, so the result is, is that it's very easy to game the system. And by game the system, I mean to put into place judges who you essentially have, you know, have paid off. And so what we have found has happened, we talked about this in the book, is that you go to a, you go to somebody who's a lawyer who's making $150,000, $200,000 a year, so the pay cut's not a thing, and you say, close down your practice, and we'll essentially pay you to do that. And we'll put you on the bench at that slightly lower salary, but we'll pay off your debts. We'll close out your firm. You know, we'll make sure you're taken care of. And by the way, uh, you know, that new house that you were eyeing that you weren't sure you could afford, we'll make sure you get a sweetheart deal on your mortgage. You know, we'll put you in touch with the right people. You'll get your mortgage. You'll get your, your perks. You'll get all of these things just become. And they do. Now, some are already directly involved in, in, in you know, the, the fraud and, and in the racketeering because they started at the city court level. The Common Sense Show is proud to be able to bring you some very special deals for MyPillow. For example, they've got half off MyPillow bed sheets, more than half off their slippers, their sandals, their mattresses, their topper covers, women's lingerie. Now, they have extremely great products, as you all know. Ladies and gentlemen, right now go to MyPillow.com backslash Hodges. Use the coupon code Hodges to take advantage of these great opportunities. MyPillow.com backslash Hodges, coupon code Hodges. Which is a big entry point for somebody to become a Superior Court judge. The city courts are, are riddled with, look, look, with... Well, let me ask, how, how do they get approached? How, how do they get drawn into this? Well, the same way anybody does, and it doesn't really matter where you are. I mean, sometimes, you know, like I said, in California, you know, you get people who have been in practice of law for a number of years. They, they've made their money. They, they would like to be a judge. You know, they, they've grown up thinking this would be, you know, a pinnacle position. Uh, you know, so they apply. Uh, but in Arizona, you know, it's really a matter of saying, hey, we're going to have a vacancy. So-and-so is going to retire. There's going to be a vacancy in that department. We think you would be really good at this. Are you interested? And, and it's really not any more complicated than that. You know, a lot of these people come originally, and, and one of the problems is a lot of the, these folks who take these jobs come from public defenders' offices or come from city attorneys' offices, you know, but places like that. So they're already in the government system before they went into private practice. So they did two or three years, say, as public defender um, before they then, you know, hit the road as, as a private attorney. Um, so, you know, they have friends in government. So when, you know, people from the committee come to them and knock on their door and say, hey, how would you like to be a judge? You know, it's flattering. And when the disparity of income between what their practice, their small practice is making versus what, you know, what they're going to make, you know, the pay cut they're going to get here is so minimal, um, it's a much easier thing to decide to do. 
Um, you know, not counting the fact that now you don't have the overhead, you don't have the personnel, you've got your pension, all these other benefits that you get. And if you add to that the incentive of the bribe, uh, you know, we're going to pay off your practice. We're going to make sure you can close down your practice. We're going to make sure your debts are taken care of. We're going to make sure that you can get a mortgage. You know, if it's now 7% interest rate, we're going to make sure you can get one at a 2% rate or get one at, at almost no percent. Or we're going to help you finance that. Whatever the case may be, depending on the person, makes it very easy to become corrupted. And then when cases come up, it makes it even easier to make the rulings that everyone wants you to make. And again, this didn't happen, you know, over four or five years. This is something that's been in the making for over 25 years. And that's why at this point it's become so insidious. Is the Sinaloa and the uh, mortgage scams, is this the main way it's done in Arizona? It's it's one of the main ways it's done in Arizona. There there are a number of scams, and, and they're really pretty good. Um, you know, we've talked about this. I, one of the things I, I do talk about in the book, you know, in somewhat tongue in cheek, but it's true, is the number of different ways monies are laundered. I mean, we think about some of the easy ones. Um, I talk about, for example, a, a, a porn server, a server used to sell really, I, I, I'm not sure what, what lousy porn is as definition, but, you know, just junk tapes where monies are funneled through the quote-unquote purchases of $10,000, $20,000 of porn tapes as a way of laundering cash. Uh, in another particular instance, I cite uh, uh, the music, a, a particular music conservatory in Arizona as overinflating their student roles. So if they've got 100 students on the rolls, or let's make it easier, they have 400 students on the rolls at $20,000 a year, uh, they put a number, they put another hundred on the rolls that are fake, that don't exist, mm-hmm. and run through another $20,000 per each one of those hundred students who doesn't exist. It's another way of laundering money. I mean, there are some terrific, crazy ways to do this that are very hard to catch. Uh, but the main one that, that you just mentioned, we talked about is real estate. Uh, one of the reasons is because, you know, Arizona certainly even, you know, probably going back to the early 90s, probably the late 80s, early 90s, has had booms. I mean, economies have busted and prices have fallen, you know, and, and risen depending on, on the economics. But the, but the growth in terms of housing development has pretty much stayed steady. So you have a ton of inexpensive properties that you can buy. And, you know, for people living around the country who, who aren't so familiar with Arizona real estate, you know, everything obviously is cheaper than California, which is why a lot of Californians are moving there. But in terms of outskirt areas, you know, we talk about Santan Valley, you know, we talked about, you know, Gilbert, Queen Creek, you know, you can buy a nice home, you know, you could buy until more recently with the boom, you could buy a nice home for $150,000. And that allowed cash, you know, you know, smaller amounts of cash, $150,000 is actually a small amount of cash when you're dealing with billions of dollars of drug money, you could put the money through these homes. You could buy these homes, hold these homes for a year or two, put somebody's name on the title, somebody who doesn't exist usually, uh, and then sell the home and run the, and you know take the cash back and then do something else with the cash. So it's a very easy way that this is done. How does this escape IRS scrutiny, though, if there's this much money floating around? Well, I, I list it this way. Firstly, I would say, who says it is? Um, I'll, I'll say that as kind of a background. Who says that it is? Okay. But the second part of it is, is that on an individual level, there's nothing for the IRS to catch. You know, if people, I, I think, have an interesting idea of the IRS. I mean, most of the time, people know the IRS when they send you a letter saying you didn't pay your taxes or you owe money, you know, that kind of thing. Um, every once in a while, when there's a refund check, people look for that. Um, the IRS investigates, you know, these kinds of matters for sure. But it usually has to have something to go on. So, you know, when the, when the documents are normal, 
when the 1099 coming from you know the escrow company is perfectly normal, the transactions are normal. In other words, unlike the situation you mentioned earlier, um, where the monies are not inflated, where the the property is worth a hundred thousand when you buy it, one hundred and twenty thousand two years later when you sell it, there's really nothing for the IRS to look at. And as long as there's a person filing a tax return, uh, as you know, an individual gets a two hundred fifty thousand dollar break uh, on, on on the first two fifty made. Uh, if it's a couple, five hundred thousand. So if you buy a property for a hundred thousand dollars and allegedly live in it for two years. And sell it for 120, 150,000 two years later. There literally is no tax consequence to that. So nothing okay. for the IRS to look at. What we have done is done is gone the macro picture, which is to look across the board at all of the transactions, not just an individual transaction. And that's been kind of the problem, I think, for a lot of people is that if you look at each individual transaction, there's very little to see. You're not going to see much. What you have to look at is the totality of the transactions, how many transactions, who's doing the buying, what what mortgage lenders, alleged mortgage lenders are involved in it. And that's really how you have to see it. And that's much, much harder for government agencies to pick up because there's nothing coming into their offices that would be a red flag. So it takes you know those like me and others who investigate this on a wider scale to provide reports to the IRS for them to investigate. Interesting. I I'm wondering how many steps does it typically take for a mortgage company scam on real estate for that money to be laundered to a judge to, uh, for, for purposes? And how does that judge typically take, take receipt of the money? Well, it's, it's, it doesn't take any. Uh, I mean, let, let's, just, let's assume for sake of argument that, you know, you're, you've just come out of working at the public defender's office where you've made almost no money. So you work two or three years in the public defender's office. You're, you're making $65,000 a year if you're lucky, $70,000. You then would, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, even in Arizona terms, you know, buying a house, paying a mortgage, all those things are difficult. You know, maybe you can buy a house, you know, maybe. Um, but you've got a small house probably on the outskirts. So, you know, somebody comes to you and so you then go into private practice and now you're making, say, you know, a, a gross, a gross of about 200,000. So you're still, your take home is still give or take. Seventy-five to one hundred thousand dollars at the end of the day. Yeah, you, know, you you up your your lot in life a little bit, but your financial security is about the same. You 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 haven't you know you haven't done a lot. Okay, even though you know on paper it says two hundred thousand dollars. By the time you're done with the write-offs, costs, expenses, et cetera, of your office, you're not there. So somebody comes to you and says, "All right, I'm going to take you to a job where you're going to make about one hundred twenty-five to one hundred fifty thousand dollars. That's what you're going to get. You're going to get a pension." You're going to get a number of perks, not great perks, but a number of perks, including medical and all that stuff. So instead of your law office, you paying for yourself for your medical, you don't have that expense anymore. And by the time you add it up, you know, what you're really taking home is probably nearly twice as much as what you were taking home in that private practice, which on paper looked like it was making more money. So to then go, so to incentivize this by saying, and, you know, you're going to shut down your practice. And what we're going to do is we're going to make sure all of those debts that you incurred are paid off. We're going to make sure that you can, quote, unquote, close it down, even if that means, quote, unquote, selling your practice to another lawyer. We'll make the arrangements for that. And then what we're going to do is we're going to make sure you can get into a house. You can have a car because uh, you got to have that. you got to have a car. you got to have a house. We'll make sure that you get sweetheart deals to do this. Is, is it just as simple as that? Now, 
For some judges, this has meant a lot of money over the years. Um, how that's determined behind the scenes, I, I can give you my, my theories on this, but nobody knows for sure. Some judges, it's a matter of just kind of staying quiet and looking the other way. Some, for sure, it, 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 it directly infects the decisions that they make. Um, so, you know, there are, there are different standards here. It's not a one-size-fits-all. The basics of how this works are, are pretty standard, uh, but judges are different. And some judges, you know, rise to certain levels. For example, you've got judges who are in charge, say, you know, or put in charge of the family court system for Maricopa County or in charge of the criminal court system in Maricopa County or even, you know, placed in charge as Judge Welty is in charge of the entirety of Maricopa County Superior Court. You know, so you have people who rise to levels of positions um, where they are more important, the things that they can do are more important. And certainly, you know, it's not just a matter of giving them more money. It's also knowing from the basic level of how they got in, who's going to be more susceptible to the money. And that's how, you know, you arrange your, your payment structure for bribes. Okay. So talk, talk about the Sinaloa involvement. Have you traced how they got involved and in how they carry out what they do? Yeah, I mean, and it shouldn't be this really, I'll give you a simple way of looking at this. And this is what I've said, said in, uh, in other interviews. Look, when you're talking about, let's, let's leave out the drug component for this month, for the moment. And as you know, cause I know you've seen some of the book, let's leave out the Chinese component of this for a moment. You know, take the mere economics of this. You know, you're talking about billions upon billions of dollars. I mean, we give you the numbers of the book, but you're talking about billions of dollars that are running through the state of Arizona every year. We're all agreed on that. There's nobody who disagrees with that. That that's, comes from the White House. That comes from the DEA. That comes from the FBI. Uh, mm-hmm. It comes from Justice Department. Billions of dollars are flowing through the state. Where does it go? I mean, I think about the easy thing here. Where does it go? It has to go somewhere. You know, dollars are not put in the back of vehicles and driven over the border. And, and there's re- one of the reasons for that is because after the Patriot Act was passed, um, roughly 2003 was when, when the full act was passed. We had a temporary one, then we had a full one. Prior to about 2000, certainly 9-11, you know, if you stuffed your vehicle with cash and drove it back over the border into Mexico, nobody cared. Nobody stopped vehicles going into Mexico. Why would they bother? So you could just take the cash, hoard the cash, stick it in the back of your vehicle. And as long as you didn't somehow get stopped, you know, in, in Arizona for something, somebody searched your vehicle, you just drive across the border. And then it would go into banks in, in, in Mexico. That was easy. After the Patriot Act, you couldn't do that anymore. So what happened instead was that you had to find ways to launder the cash. You have to do something. A billion dollars, billions of dollars in cash doesn't just travel around, you know, in the back of somebody's vehicle anymore. And so that's when, you know, starting in the mid 2000s is when you really saw the big jump. And I mean, a huge jump in these, you know, bribe and, and money laundering transactions within real property. I mean, the before and after is huge. By 2004, 2005, is when you start to see the creation of the phony mortgage companies, mortgage lending companies. You start to see, you know, just a huge spike in transactions. I mean, if you actually got a hold of the recorder's records and looked at the number of property transactions, just transaction numbers, um, forgetting how many properties or anything like that, you know, you would see almost a fourfold increase in just the number of transactions, the sheer volume, all of a sudden overnight. Well, that does not happen in the absence of money laundering. It, it can't. There's not all of a sudden... You know, if you have if your state has a million people in it, it didn't all of a sudden wake up overnight to have four million people in it. It doesn't work that way. And although Arizona's growth is very nice, you know, you're talking about five percent, six percent, eight percent growth. You're not talking about four hundred percent growth. Um, yeah, so, I, you know, that alone, you know, that alone tells you how, how this works. 
Um, but but that's but the other part of it too is that I think people understand is that you know business is business. When you're making billions of dollars, billions of dollars are business. It's like big agra, it's like big pharma, it's like big oil, and they will do whatever is necessary to grow their business. So whatever is necessary, think about what oil does, think about what agriculture does, think about what pharma does. What do you do? You have lobbying groups. You take, you know, if it's federal, you take congressmen and senators out out to dinner. If it's local, you're taking city council members out to dinners. You're taking, you know, state senators, state house members. You know, you're doing these things. You're not doing anything different than any other big business would do to protect itself and to grow its business. That's it. So if you're the cartel, again, let's leave aside what the product is for a moment. If you're the cartel, one of the things that you're going to do is you're going to protect your business. So you're going to make sure that laws get passed that don't hurt your business. If a law, if a bill is coming up through the House or through the Senate that looks like it's going to you know, harm your ability to conduct your business, what are you going to do? You're going to do whatever you, you need to do to get House members and Senate members to destroy the bill. Maybe committee chairmen, get them to drop the bill, get them not to bring it up for a vote. Um, but you're going to do exactly the same things that you would do in any other business. And so when this went in the 80s from, you know, kind of, you know, you know, kind of this this concept of you know, we could sell cocaine to, to, to people across the border to being a big billion dollar business. And certainly with the Cali cartel, it became you know billion dollar banking business. Um, you're going to have exactly the same areas of corruption that you see again with someone like Bob Menendez. That's just an amazing story with Menendez. And I just, and, and I thought, I, well, I see elements of Arizona there. With, with regard to the mechanics of the deal, um, do you think this process with the Sinaloa started with law enforcement and spread to politicians? Did it go to politicians first and go to law enforcement? Where was the entry point for this criminality that's taken hold? Both, but in different ways. Uh, there's always been, and, and it's unfortunate, you know, I, I have made a lot of friends in law enforcement in Arizona. I've also made, as you can imagine, I think the book discusses a whole number of enemies. There yes. are both. There are very, very good police officers, and there are absolutely rotten ones. And, you know, that look, that exists everywhere. Uh, in Arizona, however, one of the problems, of course, is, is the spread of money. When, you know, you're a police officer and you're making you know, fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year, and you can barely afford to, you know, put your kids certainly not in private school, let alone you know, give them after school activities. It is extremely easy to bribe people. Same thing, you know, look, same problem with the legislature. You know, we have in Arizona a citizen legislature, meaning that, and I don't think most people know this. You know, the men, members of the House in Arizona make, uh, I think it's what twenty four thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. I think two thousand dollars a month. So everybody in the legislature has to have an outside business. Um, you know, you can debate the good and bad of that. And, and there are arguments on both sides. But the reality of what it does is it makes all sorts of deals outside of yeah. the 2000 they make in legislature worthwhile because they have to make money somewhere else. They can't they simply can't live on twenty four thousand dollars a year. That's, it's impossible. And that's why you find I mean, we actually did. I had actually had Liz Harris speaking of Liz Harris. I had Liz Harris actually run this for me. I think we, we t- it turned out 40 percent of the members of the legislature, 40 percent, uh, are involved in some way you know, directly. And I mean directly in real estate. You know, either they have brokers licenses or they are investors. Um, but 40 percent of, of the members of the legislature are involved in real estate transactions. You know, it, that, that's that's how it works. So with respect to law enforcement, there are always there have always been and always will be some law enforcement individuals 
who are susceptible to bribes and take bribes. That is how it is everywhere in the world. It's certainly how it is in this country. It's unfortunate. You know, internal affairs divisions do a pretty good job of catching it. But that's always going to be the case. The bigger problem to me is not as much in the officers. It's really in government agencies okay. uh, and, you know, everything, city councils to mayors, uh, to, to county supervisors, et cetera. Is it, uh, and is then it? ultimately and ultimately into judges, because okay. as long as you can have inter- as long as everybody agrees on what's right and wrong, as long as you can have internal affairs, you will catch the dirty cops. You will put them in jail. But if you have judges who are on the take, if you've got, you know, mayors who are on the take, city council people who are on the take, it becomes that much harder because then even if they're caught, nothing happens. And that that perpetuates more and more of them getting into it. I mean, it's one thing if I'm going to take a bribe, you know, to not catch somebody or to let a, you know, I have a suspect in custody, let him go. Or I have a suspect in a house and I don't raid the house. I mean, that's one thing. You know, suspect probably be caught some other way. But if I know as a police officer that no one's going to do anything, that there's going to be no internal affairs investigation, or if there is one, it's not going to go anywhere, or that I'm not going to be arrested, I'm not going to be charged. Um, You know, my incentive to not only to do these things, but to have others participate is, is even worse. You know, we talk about this in the book specifically with Mesa, because Mesa on its face is a racketeering organization. Um, you know, people would I, I'm not sure they'll be shocked or not. I guess it depends on you know what you understand about Mesa. Um, I think most people understand that Mesa is kind of a world to itself for a lot of reasons, one of which is because it is it is really controlled by Mormons who are generally very powerful within the Mormon church. Uh, but we talk about you know Mesa and we talk about the fact that there's really a police department within the police department, that Mesa is so corrupt that what it basically did was it formed you know its own little internal agency of cops who are willing to break the law, who are willing to look the other way, who are willing to let people go, or, you know, as, as I had, I found out the hard way, you are willing to make false arrests uh, and false accusations and testify falsely uh, in order to stop anybody from breaking up the enterprise. Um, and that's, that's what, what do you difficult. mean by breaking up the enterprise, John? Well, okay. So you got, you know, in Mesa, as, we, as I discussed in the book, um, you know, Mesa is a, is a racketeering enterprise. Uh, you have most of the members of its government uh, uh, either on the take somehow or participating directly in racketeering activities. And we talk about those. We talk about who those people are, what kinds of activities those are, et cetera. Um, you know, so I, I can go into the detail, but we, we talk about it in detail in the book. What happens here is that when somebody discovers something's wrong, when somebody is making a fuss, you know, usually people go away. Um, a lot of things within the system are made so that, you know, if you get nailed on something like a small misdemeanor, you know, you're going to take a plea deal because why are you going to spend a fortune on lawyers if, if you don't have to? Why are you going to you know, put your house in, in risk? Why are you going to put your, your savings in risk if you can just take a plea deal? So most of the time, you know, when people you know, glom on to something being wrong, what normally happens is they're charged with something small, usually you know, a low end misdemeanor something where they can plead out with no jail time. And guess what they're going to do? They're going to plead out. They're, they're certainly not going to do any of the things that I do. And, and you can't blame them for that. But if you go past that and you say, no, 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 I'm not going to be victimized by this. This is a fraud. Then be prepared. Because what's going to happen is, is that groups of officers are going to show up at your doorstep. They're going to concoct charges. They're going to arrest you they're going to concoct testimony um, and they're going to do everything they can to discredit you they're going to do everything they can to put you in jail that's what they're there to do so it's one thing to look the other way you know on a suspect to let them go 
It's another thing on the other side of that to falsely arrest individuals who, you know, gained, you know, sometimes by accident knowledge of, you know, of your criminal enterprises. Um, you know, that's one of the things that I have faced, um, even to the point where, you know, in one of the attempts that was made on my life, you know, four individuals dressed as Mesa police officers, and we've identified all four of them, um, you know, broke into my house. And, you know, it turned out, as luck would have it, that overnight I wasn't home. I had, however, a client in my home uh, who was severely beaten. He was mistaken for being me. They broke into the home, um, you know, severely beat him, threw him into the garage, tied up, left him there, you know, for hours. When they finally realized he wasn't me, they then, you know, essentially ransacked my house looking for, for evidence that we had gathered. Um, that they that they knew we had, which had to do with you know the uh, the access lien fraud, which is part of the, one of the frauds in the book, uh, and you know they left them there. And fortunately, you know they stopped they certainly stopped beating him severely after they realized he wasn't me. Uh, but you know he spent time in the hospital over this. Uh, you know he has provided, of course, a declaration under penalty of perjury, which is one of the you know the footnoted documents here. Uh, that that declaration, by the way, has been used in in courts in, in several different states uh, yes, to I'm, show the seriousness of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's and 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 that's what they do. I mean, you know, it's it's a goon squad intended to enforce the criminality. That's how it works. John, before we close, we're almost out of time. I'm definitely going to have you back because I want to get into specific things. Um, but who would you say is probably the most notable public figure? that falls into this paradigm you're describing? Well, I would say in terms of the most notable public figures, I, I don't think you can leave anyone out. Um, <laughs> it, it, you know, I, I would say it this way. I mean, I mean, look, and again, there are certainly members of just say the house and, and the state Senate in Arizona who are not participants in this. You know, Liz Harris is a great example. You know, she's somebody who saw election fraud going on in 2020, decided to run for office and ran. You know, there are people who do that. Hey, look, it could be, you know, a noise issue. You know, your neighbors are too noisy and you want a noise injection, so you decide to run for office. I mean, you know, there are people who do that still. And, and that's sure. terrific because that's really what the legislature was intended to do. But if you look at any of the legislators who have been there year after year after year, who, when they are, you know, term limited out of a particular job, wind up in another job. So they go from state Senate to, and to you know, then to House then, you know, to a local job, you know, a supervisor job, then back to the House, then to the Senate. The ones that you see as career politicians in Arizona, all of them are corrupt in some form or fashion. We haven't found anybody who isn't. The degrees are different. The participations are different. I don't want to lump them all into one category. Um, I understand. But as we, talk, yeah. as we talk about in the book, I mean, you can't find anybody who's a career politician in that state uh, who hasn't been involved, at, at least at some degree, of, of taking compensation, you know, we call it bribes, but taking compensation that they should not have taken that was undisclosed uh, in order to get their job or to to perform a certain service within that job. And, and, and let me say one more thing about this. You know, we've talked about this in terms of the legislature, uh, you know, obviously, and, and in terms of, of the governorship. Um, but this also affects agencies. And that's, I think, something else that gets missed a lot in all of this. This affects agencies. Um, you know, every state, every county has agencies. Um, you know, the recorder's office in Maricopa County is an agency. You know, we've been able to prove, and we show the evidence in the book, that not only are court documents routinely taken out of the computer, manipulated, and then re-uploaded into the computer, but mm -hmm. we also show that the same thing is true for deeds. 
So deeds being recorded by whomever's recording them have been downloaded from the recorder's office database once they've been filed. They are then manipulated, changed, et cetera, and reloaded. And as we say in the book, one of our biggest concerns, and we have no reason to believe otherwise, is that because the database system has been compromised in Maricopa County so severely, uh, it stands to reason the entire database system has been compromised, and that includes the election system and the databases that hold the vote counts. That's why I want to have you back on. I want to get into the election part of it and the compromising of that. Wow, this went fast. Uh, first of all, my appreciation to you for your hard work and your bravery. Secondly, I'll be in touch with you to schedule a follow-up. We're flat out of time. The hamsters are going to shut us off and stop running. But, John, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, my audience is going to be overwhelmed. And ladies and gentlemen, we're not done. We're going to have John Thaler back on. John, thanks so much. And uh, can people get your book? Is it, is it available? Yes, actually, uh, as of as of the the Kindle version or the ebook version of the book will be available today, uh, and, okay. and on all on all sources. And uh, by tomorrow morning, I believe uh, the paperback version of the book as well will be available on all platforms. All uh, platforms. You certainly okay. can, you, and and if you if you want to pre order for any reason, you can still go to our our page, you know, report to the governor dot com, and do that. We are just finishing up the, you know, the database. As you know from looking at the book, there's about 507 separate footnotes uh, in the book, and those attach to close to about 5,000 separate pages of documents. Uh, and you know, we are diligently working to complete that so that you know, every time you read a statement in the book, you can immediately look at the document. I, yeah, and I did, that's what slowed me down. That's why speed reading was useless to me. John, yeah. thanks so much for coming on. I'll be in touch. Thank you so much, Dave. I appreciate you having me. Take care. We at the Common Sense Show have a great TV show. We bring in a panel of experts and help people navigate the uncharted waters that we're living in. Because what once was coming is no longer coming. It's already here. And we're getting you the help so you can make better decisions for your future. You can find us at thecommonsenseshow.tv, commercial-free, censorship-free, and we're getting five-star ratings on the world's major platforms. Again, check us out today at thecommonsenseshow.tv. Every knowledgeable person knows that when you have gold, you've protected your wealth. But what if the government one day wanted to confiscate your gold so they can gain total control, knowing that one day the smoke will clear and gold will be perfectly available, and that's happened all throughout history. So what you need to do is, in the interim, hide your gold. You can do that by burying it. You can go down about 12 inches, and that's all you're going to need to do. And we have a product that we call buryyourgold.com and what it does is it goes into a container you lower it in the ground with a hole you've dug up to 12 inches it's a 50-year warranty on the device it only weighs 17 pounds to pull it out of the ground and you can keep it for safekeeping and i'll tell you this is the way to hide your gold not in false walls but underground will be very very difficult to detect to find out more Go to buryyourgold.com. The product is fully guaranteed with a money-back guarantee.